Worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. If you're new with us, we every summer do a sermon series in the Psalms. So we'll be in Psalm 95, and we're systematically going through the Psalms probably for the next 10, 15 years. <laughs> but we'll get through all of them. We'll always come to the Psalms in the summer. It's a great chance to just reset as sort of the pace of life slows down. Uh, we remember uh, that we need to pray as life. And so that's um, what we're doing. And we're in Psalm 95 today. If you want to open that up, if you brought a copy of the scriptures with you, if you don't have a Bible, there's some on the ends of your rows. Uh, listen, we're a, we're a family here, so just ask somebody, even if you've never met them, hey, pass me down a Bible so that you can read along with us in Psalm 95. The Psalms are pretty much in the middle of your Bible, so you should be able to find them. Uh, so I'll just let you have a second to turn as we prepare to hear from the Lord today. So here's what I want you to do as you're turning to Psalm 95. I want you to start to think about the greatest moments of your life. Start thinking about those. Just, just go through the Rolodex. What pops to the top? The greatest moments of your life. I want you to try to go back there and remember what that was like. Remember what that's like. Thinking about it? Were you exploding with excitement? Was your whole being shaking with meaning? Maybe not physically, but... Shaking with me, here's what I mean by that. Was your will engaged? Were you saying, I want to do whatever it takes to make this awesome? Was your mind engaged? I want to know that this is awesome. Were your emotions engaged? This feels awesome. I think back, I was thinking back on the greatest moments of my life. My mind, my will, and my emotions were all engaged when my wife, Allie, turned the corner on our wedding day, and I saw her, I'd seen her earlier, <laughs> but when I saw her come down the aisle, th this is what happens to me. My full being was engaged. My will was engaged. I want to do whatever I can do. I want, you hear it, the will? I want to do whatever I can do to love her well, my mind was engaged. She is, she is, you hear it? Is awesome. This is the truth. She's beautiful. She is. And, and my emotions were engaged. This feels amazing. What a gift. And in a sense, I was out of control. I was out of control. I literally could not stop smiling. I tried because I knew what it must have looked like to the couple hundred that were there. Like, this guy's way too excited. <laughs> like, I, could, I literally couldn't. I was trying. I was like, you know, I couldn't get it. I, I was out of control because my full being was engaged. And I've had other times like this in my life. I remember when I was in high school, I went up to Malibu, which is a young life camp up in British Columbia, and it's just beautiful. And I remember one night after the, the night's talk, we went back to our cabin, and we had cabin time, and it's me and 15 of my friends some of whom were not yet Christians. Uh, many were young in their faith, and I was young in my faith, and we were sitting around discussing God. And it was like my whole being was engaged. I remember it. It was like I couldn't help. I was so, I was exploding with excitement. I was shaking with meaning. This is what it means to be alive, and this is what friendship means. Oh, it was an amazing moment. I remember one time, I was moving from Seattle down to Dallas, Texas to take my first job after college, and I drove down with my buddy Peter, and we were stopping at the Grand Canyon, and my full being was engaged. I wanted, you hear the will? I wanted to feel small in the massive wonder of the canyon. I wanted it, and I was small. You hear that? The mind, I am small. I knew it. And the emotion, I feel small. 
feels terrific. Like, that was an amazing moment. Now I have two boys. And I have this experience often where my whole being is engaged, and it's always after they fall asleep. (laughs) Because when they're awake, you know, not so great. But they fall asleep, and this is how it goes. If you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. You go in, and you just creep in, make sure everybody's alive and everything. You see them, and then it's like an explosion of your whole being. I want to be a good father to these boys. They are a gift. I feel my emotions, I feel alive. I feel the weight and the beauty of getting to be their father. And then, and this is what parents do, you walk in there and yet you know if they wake up you'll stop feeling that way but you want to kiss them and so you're getting in there and there's like a force field and you're like, oh, you're just like, don't get too close and you're trying to be quiet. Just don't wake them up. But you want, like you can't, you're almost out of control. You're like, you know you shouldn't get closer to them Because if they wake up, it's going to be a terrible night, but you can't even control it, so you get so close, and you're like, just seeing if you can just get a hair to touch the cheek, and it's just, oh, what are these moments? These moments, the reason they're so great is because we are experiencing, I was experiencing worship, which is to say my whole self was, was alive and engaged, the will, the mind, the emotions, everything is engaged. It's worship. Now, what if I told you, what if I told you that you don't have to get married, that, that, that you don't have to go to camp, that you don't have to hike the Grand Canyon, that you don't have to have kids and get them to fall asleep in order to experience the greatest moments of your life? What, what if I told you that you could experience that today? that you could experience that every Sunday, that you could experience that every other day of the week. That's what this text is going to help us figure out how to do, to truly worship and to worship God who is always there regardless of the situation. And this text is going to answer for us what is worship why should we worship? And then how can we be skillful at worship? I'm going to try to do all that. And I owe a ton to um, a sermon by Tim Keller, uh, who helped me see this. And I just want to mention this because I talked about sort of like positive moments. He talks about this psalm and how important this psalm in understanding what worship was to him when he had just been diagnosed with cancer in 2002. And how what he realized is that although... Although petitionary prayer, asking God for help, asking God to cure his cancer, asking him for endurance to get through it, although that's helpful and petitionary prayer is very helpful, what he realized is the way to make it through the hardest times in your life is also to learn how to truly worship. It's almost paradoxical. The way to make it through the hardest times in your life is to learn not just, not just how to ask God, we, we should ask him, but how to worship in the midst of that. So we'll see that today. So what is worship? First thing here, what is worship? Here's a definition. It is the act of ascribing ultimate value to something in a way that energizes and engages your whole person, your whole being. Let me say that again. The act of ascribing ultimate value to something in a way that energizes and engages your whole person and your whole being. Let me break that down for you. Worship should, if if it's true and good, worship should engage every aspect. Mind, will, emotion. And if it just engages one of those, it's, it's not truly worship. Or even just two of them. It's not worship. All three should be engaged for it to be truly worship. So look at the text with me. There are three calls to worship in the text that, that line up with the mind, the will, the emotion. Look at me. Verse 1. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock 
of our salvation. First, let me just say this. O come is a little bit light. It's actually like, get moving. Like it's, like, it's not like, oh, come. It's, oh, come on. What are you doing? Let's go. This is what you're created to do. Let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise. The rock of our salvation. You see this? This is emotional language. It's emotional language. You feel that? Sing. Shout out loud. Joy. It's emotional language. So worship should engage our emotions. Verse 6. Look at verse 6. Oh, come on. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. What is that? That's the language of the will. Do you hear it? You hear it? Submission, volition, bowing down, kneeling, humbling yourself, choosing to come before and prostrate yourself before the Lord. That's, that's language of the will. So to worship, our will must be engaged. Look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah. And, and we'll talk about that in a second. But do you hear, this is hearing his voice. What is that? Hearing his words. What are words? This, this is reason, thinking. This is language of the mind. Hear his words. Listen to his words. Think about what he has said. Think about what he has done. And be smart about it. Be of great understanding. That's the language of the mind. And all of that is a part of the call to worship. So, let me redefine. In other words, worship is, if authentic, it's something that engages not just part of you, but the whole being. And the whole being, mind, will, emotions, is ascribing, to putting whatever you have to give putting ascribing ultimate value to God who is your maker he is your sustainer he is your redeemer he is your king that's what Psalm 95 teaches us and so there is this with every part of us there is this almost inventory that we do of God's value and his greatest greatness you see who he is we, we oh wow look at that value, and we ascribe it to him. We're doing an inventory of everything that God is, and we're counting it, and we're saying, wow, this is how great God is, and every part of us needs to be engaged in that to ascribe ultimate value properly. Why, why is understanding this definition so important, that this is worship? Well, because there's many counterfeits <laughs> to, to authentic worship, and I've done them all. So, so you can go to some sort of a religious ritual, you can go through the ritual, you can mouth and, and even affirm the doctrines uh, that are a part of that ritual, the beliefs that are a part of that ritual, but you can never, and yet you can never experience the ravaging, the ravaging experience of your Savior, of the beauty and the joy that it is to know God. Have you been there? Have you gone through the motions? Have you gone to a religious ritual and done this, but never experienced the total full being transformational expression that is worship? I have. So, so, so here's what I'm saying. You may even weep you may have an emotional experience. You may have a great aesthetic experience. But if it doesn't change the fundamental way in which you live and have your being and the patterns of your life and your character, if none of that is changed by that, that experience, e even if you're weeping, then it's not worship. It's just an emotional aesthetic experience. If it doesn't change you. Now, you can do the other way. You can bow and kneel and, and, and surrender to the ways of God and to his teaching. And yet, do it without joy. Without feeling. And guess what? You're having an experience of the will, but you're not worshiping. 
You can shout, you can sing, you can have joy, you can bow, but if you're doing it to a nonsensical, non-mind-related thought, it is also not worship. You see, all three of these have to be engaged together, and there's so many combinations of that. And, And here's the deal, we've all done that. And we need to figure out how to truly worship, which is, let me say it again, if authentic, it's something that engages not just part of us, but the whole being. And our whole being ascribes ultimate value to God. Because when we do an inventory, when we engage our minds, we realize he is the ultimate value. Let me give you an illustration to help you understand this. And I took this illustration from Tim Keller, so you know it's good. Okay. Imagine there was a woman who, generation after generation after generation, a brooch had been pushed or passed down in her family. Do you know what a brooch is? So there's some there's some debate about is it brooch or brooch. Okay. I actually spent way too much time trying to figure it out because I wanted to say it right. But I think most people say, just say brooch, because that's how everybody says it. Okay, so it's like a little clasp that holds garments together. It's usually more decorative, but it's very ornate, very nice. And, and for generations, it's been passed out. Finally, this woman says, you know what, let me just see. Let me take it to a jeweler. I just want to see how much it's worth. It's probably not worth much. You know, it's just sort of been one of those things that's been passed down. She goes into the jeweler, and the jeweler takes out his little eyeglass or whatever he does, and, and he starts to look at it. I don't know how jewelers know this, but they know. And the way the light is maybe refracting off of the jewels and, and the diamonds, and, and, and he looks at it, and the more he looks at it, all of a sudden, his whole being is exposed. And he realizes the way this thing was made, nobody even know, no one's ever seen this. It, this is a way of, of, of making jewelry that, that no longer exists, and he's never seen anything like it. And he realizes this is priceless. This is more valuable than than every other piece of jewelry he has in his shop. It's more valuable than every piece of jewelry put together. It's more valuable than every piece of jewelry that he's ever come across together. This thing is of great value and his whole being is engaged and he just gasps. Right? He can't even speak. And the woman can see it and, and he starts to tell her and she is taken up in that worship as well. And she realizes in her mind that she's had this thing of great ultimate value sitting probably in her underwear drawer for years, and it is priceless. And and her whole being is engaged. Wow. I mean, they both go white almost at the realization of the great value that is before them. That's worship. They recognize the value. Now, most Americans, the polls will say, still believe that there's a God. They believe in God. And they would even say, I have God. But the way they have God is the same way that this woman had the brooch. They just have it in their possession but they have no idea the value that they possess. And so they go about their day and their life, and they they may wear it occasionally. They may say nice things about it, tell the story about how they got it, but they don't understand the immense, unprecedented, mind-blowing value of the God that they claim to have. The psalmist is begging us to do the same thing that the jeweler does. What does the jeweler do? He first investigates. He looks to see what it is that's before him. He does a what? Rational exploration of the jewelry. That's what the psalmist is saying. Start by just seeing what God has done, seeing who he is, doing an inventory of the work of his hands, And he says what you'll start to see, what will become clear to you, is that you have greatly undervalued this God that you say you worship. 
See, it starts with the mind. We don't, we don't unplug our mind to worship. We begin with our mind of seeing what God has done, what he is doing. And this actually is helpful to understand where the word worship even comes from. It comes from the old English, worthship, worthship. So we see what God is worth, using our rational mind to investigate, and then we give to him what he is worth. So when we see what he is worth, what should we give to him? Everything. You see that? Worthship. So we must investigate, enumerate the character and deeds of God as we inventory these many things, the immeasurable worth of knowing God, and it will overwhelm us. We will be overwhelmed if we, if we do it well, if we investigate and enumerate and inventory the great worth of God. It will overwhelm us in such a way that we not crumble, but explode. We will explode. We can't keep it in. And with our whole body, our whole mind, our whole will, all of our emotions, we worship to God with our lives, ascribing worth and value to God, both with our acoustic blasts, the gifts of our acoustic blasts, and the gifts of new patterns in our living and thinking and being. All of it. We give it because he's worth it. You say, how in the world can I know if I'm like the brooch lady before the jeweler or after the jeweler? How, how, do, I, how do I know? How do I know? Be- because, and this is, I just want to say this, because, let's be honest, explosion looks different for each and every one of us, right? Like your explosion might not look like mine. So what I'm not saying is you got to be like me. What I'm saying is, are you allowing yourself to see God and give to him what is his? And that will create some type of explosion that will look different depending on your personality, all those sorts of things. So it will look different. So how do you know? You don't just look around and see who's raising their hand in worship. That, that doesn't, that's not the sign. Here's two questions that may help. One, are you regularly, this, this will help you see if you're like the brooch lady before the jeweler if you answer in the affirmative to either of these questions. Question number one. And I'm not, listen, I'm going to say this up front. I got it in my notes. I'm going to say it after. I'm not saying these to rebuke you. I'm saying these to encourage you because there is a part of worship that you have not tapped into. You're living sort of a half life and I want you to live a full life, which is full life comes in the worship of God. That's what we're created to do. So, so listen to these questions closely. Are you regularly confused? Are you regularly confused by how some people seem to love to come to church on Sundays and seem disappointed when they have to miss it? Does that confuse you? That might be a tip off. You're like the brooch lady pre jeweler. Second question. Would you struggle if I asked you to make a list of things that you have given up so that you could give more time, more energy, more money and resources, and and quite frankly, more of yourself to the worship of God? I'm not just talking about Sundays here. I'm talking about in every area of life. If I said, just come up with a list, and I'd love to hear you talk about that, of things that you've had to give up so that you could worship God more fully. If you're like, I already got my list. This just might be a sign, again, I want to encourage you, that there's a part of life with God that you're not experiencing, and I want you to experience it. I want you to know what it truly means to give yourself over to the right worship of the only, the only object of worship that really deserves it, and that is your maker, your creator, your redeemer. This could require you to see better, to see, to do an accounting of God's worth. Maybe, maybe you just need to see who he is. Maybe, maybe you've got a false inventory of who he is. Maybe nobody's ever told you who he is. That's part of why we exist as a church, to help people consider the glories of God, the glories of Christ Jesus. Maybe you just need to spend some time seeing, and that's great. You're in the right place. Keep looking. Keep looking and doing an accounting of God's worth. Or it could require you to be better at giving. 
giving, releasing, reassessing the worth of something in your life, mind, emotions, or will that you are currently assigning ultimate value to, either by making it equal to God or replacing God with it. Both of those. Either just making it equal to God or replacing God with it. And you need to get better at giving worth where it's actually due, which is to God. That brings us to our second question that the psalm asks and answers, which is, why should we worship? And the answer to this one is, it's almost rhetorical at this point, which is, you can't help it. You will worship. There is something that you ascribe ultimate value to. So the question is not, there's not two types of people in the world, those who worship and those who don't worship. The question is, those who worship God and those who worship something other than God. We all worship something, we all assign something, something, some person, ultimate value. There is always a top of the list. And maybe there's two tops to your list, but there's something that's always at the top. So it's not if you worship, but what you worship. So why do you worship? You can't help it. You were created to worship. That's how God made you. It's not is there a God, but who is your God? Not is there a God, who is your God? You might not call it God, but it is your God if you ascribe to it your ultimate value. So, so even non-religious people, those who do not believe in any divine being, they have a God. What is it? Could be many things. Could be success, could be intellectual accomplishment, it could be their reputation as a thinking person, or even their reputation as a non-religious person. So maybe they've made themselves God, their own reputation, and they chase it, and they worship it, and they serve it. And if something goes wrong with it, it crushes them. And when it goes right, they feel joy. Or maybe it's a non-personal thing, like science. We're actually going to do, in September, a four-week series on scientism, which is just the worship of science as the answer to all things. And we're going to ask the question, can science answer everything? And that's part of our annual series we do, how to, have, how to Have Better Conversations. There's just lots of people like that in our city who probably at the top of their lifts would be uh, the wonders and advances and, and, and honestly the value-giving life of science because science is fantastic. So stick with us because that'll be a fun series starting in September. But what is it? Everybody has a God because everybody worships it. So really the answer to question number two, why should we worship? Because we can't help it. So let me just rework that question, which is why should we worship the God of the Christian Bible who has manifested himself in the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth? Why should we worship God? Why should we worship Christ? Now remember what I said about most people believing in this country that there is God. And now ask the question, now what is the main difference between living just this limp along life, so to speak, versus a life brimming with thanksgiving and joy? What's the difference? And and here we're talking mainly about people who are going to church, people who would call themselves Christians, but are just limping along, or those full, full of thankfulness and joy? I mean, is it just the difference between optimism and pessimism? No. There's something else. And I think the difference for most people is found in the distinction between just believing that there is a God or that Christ is the Son of God and worshiping that God with your whole being, which will lead to transformation and new life. We got to look at that distinction between believing and worshiping. Because so often we just use the language of I believe but it never leads to worship. James 2.19 says this. James uh, was a brother of Jesus, and he saw the risen Jesus, and so he went from just saying, oh, my brother, he's a wacko, to, oh, my brother, he's the son of God. And he is a leader in the early church in Jerusalem, and he writes a letter. And this is what he says. He says to the church in Jerusalem, you say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe 
and they tremble in fear. You see what James is saying? He's saying, this is what he's pushing at, just intellectually assenting to the reality of God is not enough. Or even assenting to the fact that Jesus is God the Son in the flesh. I mean, those are big things to believe, and it takes faith to believe them. James says, guys, even the demons believe those two things. They clearly do. We read in the gospel accounts, when Jesus comes, they fear him. They know who he is. He's God's son. So the demons believe. We believe. What's the difference? And I think a way to see this is looking at the difference between angels and fallen angels. The Bible teaches us about these. These are spiritual beings that God has created for his worship. And what he, and the Bible teaches us is that there are a group of them that chose to reject God and their calling to worship him. We call those fallen angels or demons. So exactly the same, created for the exact same purpose as angels, but now they're doing something different with their lives. And the distinction is, what are they doing differently? They have a different object of worship. Fallen angels or demons, they know who God is, they know what God has done, they know what he is like, they know his character, and even with all that knowledge, all that belief, they still refuse to worship him. To worship him as the ultimate value. And they choose instead to worship their own splendor and beauty because they want to be God. They're still worshiping. They can do no other. That's what they were created for. But they've just changed where they're directing that worship. And because they're no longer directing at God, when you think of the difference between angel and demons, just what do you think of? Obviously, we have bad characterization of this, and, and it's sort of, it's almost funny why do we think of this? But I think at least part of what comes to your mind is we think of angels as full of light and beauty and glory, and we think as demons as gross, dark, decaying. Well, that's actually true. They are withering away because they are turning all of their worship upon themselves. And the Bible teaches that God has created for them a final unresting place which the Bible calls the lake of fire. So they're once beautiful, splendid angels, and now they are withering and decaying, and ultimately they will spend an eternity of unrest away from the, the one who created them. The angels of light, on the other hand, they believe, just like the demons, and they accept with gladness. With mind, will, and emotions, they with gladness accept their purpose and place in God's creation, which is to bring him praise and worship. And it leads to light and purpose and meaning and beauty. They are doing what they were created to do. Have you ever thought about it that way? We have a very similar choice. Just believing that there is a God and that Jesus is the Son of God, that's not enough. We were created to worship. And if we're not worshiping God, we're worshiping ourselves or something else, and it is eating away at us. We are withering. But if we choose to turn from false worship to true worship of God, we won't wither anymore. We'll actually begin to be renewed. That's why this matters. We'll begin to be renewed. Is this making sense? The psalmist makes this logical connection, verses 3 to 7. He goes on a long rant about the greatness of God. He says, for the, God, for the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountaintops. They're also his. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord. Why? 
He's our maker, for he is our God. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hands. Wow. I mean, he's making the logical connection. If God's up here, we're down here. So it's only right that we'd worship him. If he's our maker, then we are the made. So it's right that we would worship him. If he is the shepherd and we are the sheep, then it makes sense that we should worship him. See, it's rational. It makes tons of sense, right? It's so clear. It's so obvious when we look around that God, whoever made this, deserves our worship. So clear, so obvious. So it should be easy, right? So why is it so rare that people give their whole being, even God's people, don't give their whole being to worship their maker. And this brings us to the second half of the psalm. Starts off pretty good, I'm tracking, and then all of a sudden, er, gets kind of negative. <laughs> I'm serious. Gets a little bit dark here. This was an upbeat jam. I was clapping, tapping my foot, and then all of a sudden, it gets dark. Look at this. End of verse 7, beginning of verse 8, says this. Today, if you hear his voice, that's God's voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me, that's God, to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. And this gets really dark at the end. Therefore, I swore to that generation, in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. What? This was a sweet jam. Why did you go there? Do not harden your hearts, the psalmist says. It's so obvious. It's so natural in one sense to see I'm not God. I didn't make myself. I'm not the shepherd. It's so easy to see that, so I should just worship whoever that is. And yet it's so hard to actually do it. So what's going on here? Well, here's what I'd say. We must work at it. Work at what? We must work at not worshiping. There is an active participation that we have in hardening our own hearts. It takes some real work, and we're really good at it. And there's two reasons we're really good at it. First reason, humanity in general has been working at it, working at hardening their hearts, since Adam and Eve, since the first human beings. So there is this generational foundation to our blindness and our hardness. In a similar way to, you might think, of racism, how it pervades a culture and can and has lasting effects and you don't even know where it came from. It's like this hardening of our heart towards God. It's preconditioned in us so that we miss his value or miss inventory it, even though it seems so obvious. The Bible tells us this. He says we're born sinners, each and every one of us. That is to say that we're born worshiping anything but God as we were designed and purposed to do. This is called original sin. It's just baked into us. And sin is missing the mark. That's a great definition for sin. There's a goal, there's a mark, this is what we're created and designed to do, and we miss it. The arrow shoots over there, and we start worshiping something else. You see, that's what sin is. So it's baked into us. The second thing is, with this hardness already baked in, then, then we, with our own wills and volition, choose to double down on that hardness and mis-aim purposefully. Shoot it over here and miss the mark. So, so we are both born this way and then we volitionally harden our own hearts. We work at it. Even contrary to all the evidence that points to God's existence, his greatness, his value, his love for us, despite it all, we work at it to miss the mark. And the psalmist anticipates that, that, that when he's telling you this, you're going to say, no, we don't. I don't work at it. I wasn't born this way. I'm not that bad. 
I, I do worship pretty well. He, he anticipates your response. And he says, let me just give you an example that, that you should know pretty well. So for those who were reading Psalm 95, they would have known this so well. This would have been the story that everybody talked about, about the hardness of heart. It's such a popular story. The problem is most of you don't know about Meribah and Massah, right? How many of you know much about that? They would have known everything about it. So he would have brought that up and they'd have been, they'd be like, no, 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 oh, yeah. I guess, and here's what the, how the story goes, and you can look at this up in Exodus chapter 17. Let me just tell you what's going on here. I'll give you some context. In, in chapter 13, uh, well, in chapter 12, God has released the people of Israel from slavery. They are now free. God has used 12 plagues on, on the whole nation of Egypt to, to say, Pharaoh, let my people go, and they go. And these people watch God do that, and they are freed. And then, as they're going through the first part of the desert, God, because it's hot, brings a cloud for shade. It's literally God's presence, and it's shading them during the day in the desert so they don't, uh, you know, combust. <laughs> and then at night, there's a pillar of fire that, that brings them heat, because it's cold in the, in, in the wilderness at night. Brings them heat and guides their way, so they continue to move at night. So that's chapter 13. Chapter 14, that army from Egypt comes back. They let them go, but then they're like, no, we're going to get them, because that's what always people do. They change their mind about God, and they're coming after God's people, the Israelites, in the desert, and they come up to the Red Sea. You heard about this story? The Red Sea, and, and the people of Israel are like, okay, we're done now. We're dead. And then what does God do? Through, through, through Moses, he parts the sea. And they walk through on dry land. And none of the Israelites die. And the sea swallows up the Egyptians. Oh. Then in chapter 15, the first time this happens, they get very thirsty. But the water that they find is bitter. There's something wrong with it. So God says, hey, Moses, throw a piece of wood in the water. God's so funny. Just chunk a two-by-four in there. Let me show you what, what happens. And the water turns to be sweet, no longer bitter. And they drink, and they are filled. Wow, thank you, God. Then in chapter 16, they're hungry, and so God brings manna, it's kind of like bread, from heaven and quail so that they can eat their fill and be full. All of this before chapter 17 when Meribah and Manasseh, or Massah happens. And what happens is they get thirsty again. And, you, and you're thinking, well, they just saw all this stuff God's done. He's already turned bitter water into sweet water. They'll be fine. It's logical. It's obvious. They've seen so much that God can do. Guess what these people do? They begin to quarrel with God and, and Moses, their leader, and they almost stone Moses to death. Moses says, they're going to stone me to death, God. They say, we should never have left Egypt. God's just brought us out here to die. Uh, did you not see what just happened? What God did for you? How, how could you not see his love? So they're working at this. They've got to work at this to forget all the things that God has done. And they ask at the end, if you go back and read this in verse 7 uh, of chapter 17, uh, they say this. They're quarreling. They're asking God this and that. They say, is God, is our Lord even among us? They don't even know if he's there. They don't even know if he exists. How could they ask that question after everything they've seen? That's the psalmist's point. If they could forget, if they could harden their hearts so much so that they have to ask the question, is God even among us? You don't think we could forget? You don't think we could forget to see God's value and love and mercy and grace in our lives? You see this? They worked very hard to harden their heart. To the point that instead of worshiping the Lord, they began to question his very existence and his love for them. That takes work, but we all do it. We are all given a heart of the sinner. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. The psalmist tells us this. Jesus told us this. The apostles remind us of this. All of us are like these people at Meribah and Massah. And this is what happened to them. Verse 11 says, they shall not enter my rest. They never got to see the promised land, which is where God was taking them. They all died out, and they never got to see the rest, the Sabbath rest of the land. And it's so sad because they hardened their hearts. So that's the story 
that the psalmist brings up just to remind us it seems so clear, it seems so easy to worship with our whole being, but oh, how easy it is to quarrel with God, to test God, to forget what he's done, to improperly inventory his greatness and value. And so why does he end with this sobering warning? To remind us that worshiping God is so much more than just a nice little add-on in life. Without a reverent consideration for how one can and ought to worship and how one should reorder one's life to be thoroughly worshipful, you, too, will and can miss out on the promises of God. You see, God had promised that generation they would have rest, but they miss out. They miss out on the promise of growth and transformation that God says will happen when you learn to worship. You can miss out on the promises of joy and security that comes with worshiping God rightly. And you may even miss out on the eternal inheritance that God promises of eternal rest. So this is serious, serious business. Psalm 95 is serious business. Worship is serious business business. And so what can this psalm teach us about how to do this skillfully, right? Because that's what we're asking. Okay, how do I do it well? Four things, four things. First, community. It's so obvious you almost missed it, but did you notice in the first half of the psalm, it's all in the plural. Let us sing. Let us make a joyful noise. Let us come into the presence uh, with thanksgiving. Let us bow down and kneel. See, it's all in the plural. What, is, what does it mean? He's talking about the community together doing these things. We are the people of his pasture. All of us. We need community in order to worship well. You, you, of course, your individual worship is important. Of course it is. But, but maybe one of the best ways to think about individual personal worship is like a dress rehearsal for the corporate act. And really in the corporate communal act of worship is where transformation really happens. Um, C.S. Lewis uh, talks about this. He had uh, th- two close friends. So there's like this group of three, this cadre. Jack was what they called C.S. Lewis. Jack, his friend Ronald, and Charles. Well, Charles suddenly died one day, and C.S. Lewis talks about how he was sort of surprised at what happened. He sort of thought, yes, it's very sad that Charles died, but deep down he thought, well, one of the positives that'll come out of this is I'll get more time with Ronald. So I'll actually have a better relationship with Ronald now that, that you know, I don't have to share him, in a sense, with Charles. And C.S. Lewis talks about this, and he says, what happened was the exact opposite. I knew less about Ronald. And what he says is because there were things about Charles that Charles could bring out of Ronald that, that he couldn't. So he actually knew Ronald less after Charles died. What, what's, what's, what's going on here? As finite human beings, we actually can only know other human beings in the context of community because each of us draws things out for the other. And if this is true of finite human beings, how much more true is this of an infinite God? So how are you going to know God well? In community. Because each of us draws something out about who God is. His great value and worth is drawn out by community, not just individuals. So individual is important, but it's a dress rehearsal for the fuller experience of community worship. This is so important in our very consumeristic, individualistic culture where we, we make spirituality so private. My thing, I do it on my own. I'm going to just, you know, dabble this church here, this church here. I get something from this church there. And, and we never experience truly being connected in community, a community that worships together and draws out the value of God together. Don't do that. You need it. If you want to worship well, you need community. And consistent community where you're known and being known and people are helping you worship. The second, truth. Well, this is interesting for worship, right? Because we tend to think of worship as an emotional experience, but it's not. It's a truth experience. How does the psalmist know that God is his shepherd, that, that, that we are his sheep, that God created everything? How does he know all this? He knows it because he trusts the revealed truth of the prophets who have told us. They have said, this is what God has told me, and they've written it down, and he trusts the wisdom of Scripture, the truth about God can be known. This is not how most Seattleites think about spirituality. Yes, they want an experience of spirituality. They do. They really do want to. You tell them, hey, 
I can help you touch the divine. Yes, I want that. I so want that. But then you tell them, this is the truth about how that happens, and they say, ah, I, mean, I like that part. I don't really like that part. What, what if I just bring a little bit of, of Shintoism into it, and then a little bit of Buddhism into it, and then what if I, a little self-help stuff, and I'll just concoct my own little mixed drink, and, and this elixir will help me have a spiritual experience. And I, I like a little bit of that Jesus in there too, especially that stuff about you're forgiven. I like that stuff. You see, we just design our own God, our own religious experience. We design it. That's what we do in Seattle. That's not worshiping in truth because you've made yourself the truth. Now you are the one who decides what's true and what's not true. That's not truth. That's convenient. And it's your prerogative. Go, if this is you, again, I'm just encouraging you. There's something better. But this is America. You can do whatever you want. You can create your own religion. You can create your own God. But this is not a living God. This God is not alive. This God cannot speak to you or challenge you or push you. That only comes when you let God be God and worship in truth. If you've created the God, then that God does not transcend you. You see that? That God is not alive. That God does not wrestle with you. That's just a God that you've created in your own image. That God has no power. Not more than you. Because you created him. Second, if this is what you do, you can't even be a part of a community. You see that? You've isolated yourself. Why have you isolated yourself? No one else has the exact same God as you. You've made your own, and now only you can worship that God. However, if you worship in truth, and even though it's hard, you submit to what the scriptures say about who God is, guess what? Like for me, I could meet a, a, a Nigerian woman, and me and her could have an experience of worship and community and knowing one another that is out of this world. And guess what? We don't have the same gender, we, we don't have the same skin color, we don't have the same socioeconomic background, we don't have the same educational level, but what do we have? The same truth. And the kind of relationship and community I can have with her far transcends anything that when we just create our own little gods and kind of coexist together, you'll never have. That's something I want to be a part of. That's the kind of thing that breaks down racism, that breaks down divide, that creates what God envisions that the gospel already, always does, which is create diversity amongst age and race and class. That's the picture of heaven. And it comes when we worship in truth. Not truth we've made, truth revealed to us by the word of God. Third, we need the spirit. Now the word spirit doesn't come anywhere in Psalm 95, but the reality of God's presence does, right? He says, come before, let us, let us come into his presence, let us kneel before him. We are the sheep of his hand. And yes, in one sense, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at all times, so we cannot hide from God. There's no place that we cannot hide. But there is a distinction between the type of presence we can experience. Like you've had this, you've been in a room with, you know, I get in a fight with Allie, I can be in the same room with her, but it's like we're not in the same room, right? We are truly not present to each other. God says that is the experience you can have of me. And the human race is meant to be my sheep and I its shepherd. That is personal relationship and presence. And the way we have personal relationship and presence is through the Spirit of God. That's how he comes close to us and reminds us that we are God's, that we are in his hand. That is how we come before and kneel before God in the spirit, and we must worship in spirit and truth. So a good worshiper, you could say, is like a master sailor. If you think of the Holy Spirit as wind, which scripture talks about, it's not that the sailors create the wind, they can't make the wind happen, but... Sailors are sensitive to God's spirit. They're sensitive to the wind. They know how the wind works. They know where the wind shows up. They know how to let the wind fill their sails so that they might grow and transform and experience God's presence to the full. We must, as worshiper, be like master sailors, knowing how to engage with God's presence through his spirit. 
that worship should be palpable. You should feel God's presence because his spirit he has sent to comfort us and be near to us and reveal himself to us in the spirit. And then finally, we must experience rest. Rest. That's the whole point. Rest. That's what the people in, in Meribah and Massah missed out on. The rest of God. And actually, Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, if you could go back and read it, we don't have time to look too closely at it right here, but uh, in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews talks about Psalm 95 and is almost baffled by how it ends. Why does it end with this whole thing about they shall not enter rest? And if you read it, what you'd find out. Now, let me just pause because I'm about to tell you something very important. If I take a drink of water, it's usually because I'm about to tell you something important. I want you to listen. This is the very last thing, and then we're done. Listen closely. We need gospel Sabbath rest. That's what worship is. That's what it leads to. But we need it in order to worship. And in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, the author talks about Psalm 95 and says, why in the world is David, who wrote this psalm, writing hundreds of years after the event of Meribah and Massah, talking about they didn't get rest because, he says, Joshua eventually leads God's people into the rest of the land. They experienced Sabbath rest in the land. Joshua took them in. And yet, Hebrews says, David, the psalmist, says, today you can experience his rest. What's going on? They didn't have rest, then they had rest, now we can have rest. What is he talking about? What he's saying is, the the author of Hebrews, there is a type of rest available to us that is far beyond even just the physical rest of coming into God's promised land. There is a spiritual rest that God wants for you. Rest from what? Rest from work. What work? The work of trying to save yourself. In Christ's sacrificial atonement on the cross, the wrath of God was satisfied. He died the death we should have died. He rose to new life that we too can have so that, so that we don't have to work for our own salvation, so that we don't have to work to try to be righteous. All other gods, all other religions, all non-religious gods, they all ask of you in your worship that you work to live up to the standard that either you've created for yourself or that that non-God of the Bible has created for you so that you can receive blessing. The gospel says it's finished. The work has been done. You can't work yourself to salvation. You simply rest in the finished work of Christ by attaching yourself to Jesus by faith and worship of him. And it is finished. And you will experience this greater rest that even the people of, of Israel didn't experience when they got into the land of milk and honey. There's something even more. It's the rest from the work of saving yourself. And that's all pregnant in Psalm 95 and comes to fruition in the person and work of Jesus. And so when you grasp this, your mind and your will and your emotions should explode. You should be out of control knowing that I no longer have to work to be blessed by God. And if you don't grasp rest, gospel rest, if you don't feel that rest, you can worship as hard as you want, and you're missing it. Because your worship is going to start becoming work. And you're going to worship hard because you're working hard to try to prove to God that he should love you. But he already does. He's already died. He's already sent his spirit. Stop working and start worshiping. Let's pray. Father, We repent of of our false worship, of our worship of other gods, our worship of ourselves, our half-hearted worship of you. God, we, we repent of our trying to worship so hard that you'd love us. And we ask that you would send your spirit, that you would reveal to us your truth 
so that we can start worshiping well with our whole being, with our whole body, our whole mind, all of our emotions and our will, we can give to you because you are worth it. Because when we see what you've done in Jesus, uh, we're baffled. And we want to be almost out of control knowing the love of Christ. Help us now as we worship God to know that. Help us to just release anything that we're holding on to and worshiping as if it were God, as if it had ultimate value. And help us to put you where you belong, at the top, so set apart that that it's not even funny how much different we view you than every other good thing in our life. Help us, God. We need your help. Help help us in community to, to truly worship because you are the great I am. It's in your son Jesus' name that, that we can even pray these things because he has broken the bond of sin so that we can talk and know you again. It's in his name, the name of Jesus we pray.